All right, so we do have a lot to go through today. Um, we are going to continue our study in Romans chapter 9. Last week we went through, through verse 5. Um, but before we get into Romans 9, we're going to go back and uh, lay a foundation. We're going to be reading a lot of verses today. That's why we've got some verses up on the screen uh, so that you don't have to flip back and forth. I have the verses, many of the verses at least, outlined in your handout, so you can follow through there, but you'll probably be struggling to keep up if you do that. So, um, let's see, the three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, as we mentioned, were land, seed, and blessing, so we did good on that. But before we go to Romans 9, let's turn back and look at Romans chapter 2, or again, it will be up on the board, because I think that these two passages are really closely connected. There are a lot of um, comparable things that we see in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 9. So Romans 2, starting in verse 25, says that, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So take a minute to try to soak that in because I know it can get confusing. But um, we'll try to clarify it a little bit. Uh, continuing on, says that, And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So, in that passage, there's a lot about circumcision and uncircumcision. It's pretty much summed up here that he is a Jew uh, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Um, so a Jew is one inwardly, not outwardly. And we're going to go and we're going to do a, a brief overview of circumcision in the Old Testament. I just did a, a word search on circumcision, cross-referenced that with heart, and came up with a pretty fun study on circumcision of the heart. So... Um, I bet you guys don't view circumcision and discussion of circumcision as something that is fun. But uh, I had a good time going through that this week, and we're going to look at it a little bit briefly. So circumcision, we want to start off in Genesis 17 with Abraham, when God made his covenant with Abraham. So Genesis 17, 10, and 11 says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So we talked last week about how the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. God was the one who went through the, the parted animals. He alone was the one who made that promise. But circumcision was the sign of that promise. And it was given to them to keep throughout the generations. In Leviticus 12.13, it is mentioned as being part of the law. This is part of the Mosaic law. Uh, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Talking about a child and what to do in the event of having a child. This is uh, directly from the Lord what they are commanded to do. Now jumping forward to Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Moses says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to hear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. So, uh, while circumcision is definitely a part of the law, um, there's a lot more in this verse, in these two verses, than just being circumcised. He talks about loving the Lord your God, serving the Lord your God, and to do it with all of your heart, with all of your soul, uh, to keep his commandments, to keep his statutes. It's not just the things that we do. And it can be really easy when you're looking at the law to have a legalistic understanding of the law, that it's just a checklist of things that I need to do. And that's what started to happen with the law as Israelites, as Hebrews, were trying to please God. They came to a point where all they had to do was this outward expression of their submission to God, this act of circumcision. But again, Deuteronomy 10, 12 talks about much more than just an outward expression. Going on in verse 14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven and the earth and all that is in it. It's just a reminder from Moses that, hey, you, you belong to God. In case you forgot, you are his. And the circumcision, again, that's just an outward expression, a sign. But you really need to love your, the Lord your God. You need to be submitted to and um, sold out to the Lord your God. And then in verses 15 and 16, says, Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. Even you above all peoples, as it is this day, so circumcise your hearts and stiffen your neck no longer. So here we see that phrase again, to circumcise your heart, to once again, not just have this outward expression, but to take and to cut away at your heart and to, um, Acts chapter 2, to be pierced to the heart. They were convicted. They had um, an effect, a change in their heart that was later reflected by the, the physical circumcision. The physical circumcision, again, is just a sign. And then here, uh, he adds to it, and he says that you need to circumcise your heart because right now you are stiff-necked. You have stiffened your neck. And this is what an animal would do when somebody would go to, to control the animal, to put a yoke on the animal, it would stiffen its neck, put up its shoulders, and put up a fight. It would not be submissive. It would not be um, following the, the will of its master, but it would be putting up a fight and rebelling against his master. And so God calls through, through Moses, God is calling the Israelite people a stiff-necked people and telling them to repent, to change, not by circumcising their flesh, but by circumcising their heart. And remaining in Deuteronomy, looking over at chapter 30, verse 6, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And here in this verse, we see that it's the Lord who's doing the, circumc the circumcising of their heart. Um, and what is the result to be of that circumcision? Life. 
And what else? All right, to love God and ultimately that you may live. So hopefully you're, you're following along. It's not just an outward circumcision. That's how it started off with Abraham, right? But that was just a sign. <clears throat> and to circumcise a heart really is talking about their, their motives, their will, their desire, uh, their inward self. All right, let's keep going. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And so here they're told to remove the foreskin of their heart, not removing the foreskin of their flesh, but the foreskin of their heart. Again, to, to cut away at, to remove, to take any unnecessary uh, sinful impediments, sinful uh, thing that is in between them and God and to get rid of it. And what is the, the result? What's going to happen if they do not remove the foreskin of their hearts? All right. The wrath of God will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So again, the evil of their deeds is what is mentioned as being the, the necessity for the circumcision of their heart. They have this evil deed, they have evil, wicked hearts, and therefore their hearts need to be circumcised. They need a change. Uh, sticking in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, that's an indication of Jewish practice, for all the, these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So, here he's calling out those who are only, who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Again, they only have this outward appearance of being obedient to God, of being submissive to God, but their hearts haven't changed. And God, in the latter part, he is equating Israel with these uncircumcised nations. Now, remember, Israel was to be set apart. They were to be unique. And they would look at other nations like Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, Moab, maybe not Judah, well, maybe Judah um, at times, and they would say, well, those nations, they aren't following after God, but um, we're, we're God's chosen people, right? We are the Hebrews. We are the Israelite people, the Jewish race, and God is saying, well, no, if you're uncircumcised in heart, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. If your flesh is circumcised, you guys are in the same category as these other uncircumcised Gentiles. Any thoughts or questions for this point? All right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Of incest, right? Yeah. Wicked nations, again, that the Israelites would despise. And here they're being equated with them. Um, so, yeah, Moab, that was 
not a, a nation that Israel would look to model itself after, right? They definitely look down their noses at those in these other nations. Yeah, these are picked expressly for that purpose to let Israel know you're not any better than them. You guys are um, making yourself equal with these other people that you look down upon. All right, in Acts, moving on to the New Testament, Acts 7.51. This is Stephen's uh, sermon right before he dies, right? Uh, He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Uh, um, Let's see. I must have typed that up wrong. And have ears? What? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) What's that? Yeah, but it's weird. Will somebody look it up in their Bible? Maybe I should look it up in my Bible because that sounds weird, right? Acts 7.51. Oh, in heart and ears. <laughs> Thank you. I know, but I was reading it wrong in my head. All right, so you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. So, um, just as their fathers back in the day, they were equated with Edom and Ammon and uh, Moab, these other nations they didn't want to be equated with. Now here, Stephen's calling out the, the New Testament Jews, and he's saying, you guys are just like them. You're doing the exact same thing. Your heart, and here he adds, your ears and are uncircumcised. You're not listening. You're not paying attention. You haven't been affected and, and penetrated to the heart, right? Your hearts haven't been cut, and um, you are stiff-necked, that same word that we saw back in the Old Testament. And then what else does he add to the list here? He equates uncircumcision again with stiff-necked, and what else? Yeah, resisting the Holy Spirit, and that's not a small thing, right? To resist the Holy Spirit of God, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that is a big thing. What's that? Yeah, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Um, Those are pretty sharp words, right? And again, we remember, they weren't received too well, were they? Um, He was martyred, killed because of him calling out the Jews in this fashion, in this way, letting them know that even though you guys are... You look good on the outside, right? You have your circumcision of the flesh taken care of. Really, you're just a bunch of whitewashed tombs. On the inside, you're rotting flesh, and that needs to change. You guys need to circumcise your heart and your ears. Make sure that you are right before God. <clears throat> All right, let's continue on into the book of Galatians. Galatians is a good study. Um, has a lot to say um, that really correlates with where we're going to be going in Romans. We're just going to look at a few verses, though. Galatians 5, 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So here, Paul is teaching this radical teaching, right? The mystery that he taught in Ephesians chapter 3, that the Gentiles are a part of the church, that it's not just salvation for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Back in 3.28, he said that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ by faith. And so he's just reiterating that here, that it's by faith that there is no, um, I guess there is distinction in some respects between Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, but in Christ we are one, right? 
working through faith and love. And then Galatians 6, 15, and 16. This gets a little interesting. It says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. And so that term, the Israel of God, has the same kind of uh, understanding as those who are circumcised apart. So those who are just circumcised in the flesh, they aren't understood here in that phrase, that term, the Israel of God. That's speaking of those who are circumcised apart, those who are submissive, who are truly repentant and uh, longing after God. And then going back in Galatians, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. All right, and um, what does he say about... Um, Let's see, about the Gentiles there in that passage. All right, they are justified by faith. And then they also seem to be, or they are up farther, they're the ones who are spoken of as the sons of Abraham, right? And then he says later on down, he reminds us of his covenant with Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed in you. So, once again, what are the three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant? And blessing. All right, land, seed, and blessing. Good, we need to keep that in mind as we're going through here. Land, seed, and blessing are all uh, part of what was promised to Abraham in his Abrahamic covenant. All right, and... Now let's go back and real briefly look at that verse we saw in Romans 2 again. Uh, Romans 2, 28, 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So, once again... Um, What's on the outside isn't what's important to God, right? He's looking at what is on the inside, making sure that their hearts have been changed, have been transformed. Um, that's what we went through and uh, did a little brief word study on. And now we want to see how that relates to our text in Romans six, Romans 9, 6 through 13. So um, if you're not in your Bibles, I know that when there are screen or verses up on the screen, it can be tempting not to use your Bible. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Romans 9, because um, we should be here for the majority of the time. So Romans chapter 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 6. So Romans 9, 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendant, who are descended from Israel. Now, Again, this is kind of where it, it can get interesting because some of those last verses that we looked at in Galatians, in Galatians 6 and Galatians 3, 
they were referring to the Jews with terms that, or to the Gentiles with terms that were used of the Jews historically. So in Romans 6, it talked about the Israel of God, right? And that was speaking to the Jewish, or to the Gentile people. And then in Galatians chapter 3, it was speaking of sons of Abraham as being those who are of the Gentiles because they had been blessed through Abraham, right? Um, and there are other places in the New Testament where we find this same kind of um, language being used of the Gentiles, language that had previously been reserved for the Jews. In um, Philippians 3, it talks about uh, the true circumcision, and it equates that with the Gentiles. In First Peter 2 that we went through on Wednesday nights pretty recently, it talks about being a, a chosen nation or a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, right? And those were terms that were previously used of the Jews. So it can be confusing at points, um, but for those who are in my systematic theology class, uh, remind us, is Israel the church? Is the church Israel? Did the church replace Israel? Okay, so there's a distinction, right? Um, and we need to <laughs> we need to keep that in mind. We need to remember that. Um, let's see. So um, we do also have to realize that there are um, aspects of the Abrahamic covenant into which we've been uh, grafted, right? We'll see that later on in Romans chapter 11, that we've been blessed by Abraham through his descendants, that aspect of the Abrahamic covenant applies to the church. The land, seed, and blessing, the blessing aspect comes to the believers through Christ. Christ is the seed aspect of that blessing, and all the nations will be blessed through him. That includes those nations who are outside of Israel, those nations that are outside of the Jewish race. Um, and so we are a part of that blessing of Christ. There is only... Uh, one way of salvation, right? How, how are we saved? How is Abraham saved? By faith, right? That's the same way that we as Gentile, New Testament Gentile believers, we are saved as well. There is only uh, one kingdom of God. Again, that's a big subject we talked about a little bit in our uh, systematic theology class, but there is one kingdom of God. Uh, and kingdom and church, while they have some overlapping, they're not the same. And there is only one people of God. There's neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile, um, or man or woman, slave or free, but we're all one in Christ. So um, when we get to Romans 6 here, and it says that for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, we have to ask ourselves, is this speaking in the same way that Galatians 3 and Galatians 6 was speaking? Is this speaking of the church as Israel, or is it speaking of um, Israel as Israel? And so there are a couple of different uh, understandings of this verse. And this verse really does act as a, a watershed. And the, our understanding of this verse acts as a watershed for how we understand the rest of this section. Romans chapter 9 through 11 can be understood in two different ways, depending on how we understand this verse. And so we see here that... Um, in this circle, this circle over here represents ethnic Israel. And we could understand true Israel as being within ethnic Israel. That's one way of understanding this text. 
Another way of understanding it would be to see ethnic Israel as overlapping with true Israel, that true Israel isn't necessarily coming out of ethnic Israel, but that there is overlap between the two. Now, I think that the model on the left is the, the model that we should understand it to be, that uh, true Israel comes out of ethnic Israel. And uh, we'll see that as we go for, farther into our text, that uh, starting in verse 7 and following, God focuses on Israel, and we see a, a narrowing of ethnic Israel. Um, we do have to remember, again, that the promise of salvation was never made to, to every Jew, right? But only to a remnant of the Jews. And we see this same promise, we see the same um, dynamic, I guess, in the church as well. So, um, we have the visible church, right? The church that we can see, this church building here. And then within that church building, we have the invisible church, those whose hearts have been changed, those who have truly repented, come to a knowledge of God. And so we, we know when we go to a church, even here at our own church, that not everybody who walks through these doors is going to be a true believer. Not everybody who comes in here is going to be with us in heaven one day, um, Walking through the church does not make you saved. Being a Jew does not make a Jew saved. Um, but there is a true Israel within that um, group of ethnic Israel, national Israel, a group who have truly been circumcised in heart, not just circumcised in flesh. Not every Jew who is circumcised in the flesh has been circumcised in the heart. Um, questions before we go on. those who are saved Israel, those who are part of the kingdom, those who have been circumcised in heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just because you're a descendant of Israel or of um, the, the Jewish people, doesn't mean that you are saved, right? All right, good. All right, um, moving on. So going back to where we were before, this is where we started off, and we see Abraham up at the top, and those are his, um, maybe not his wives, but the ladies that he had children with, right? Um, we see they're represented first is Hagar, and in Genesis 16, 1 through 4, we can read her story. Will somebody open up to that and read that for us? Who's going to get Genesis 16? All right, and then Mike, will you get Genesis 21, 1 through 3? You can read about Sarah and her descendants. And then what about Genesis 25, 1 and 2? Who's got that? All right, Logan. All right, Jeremy, go ahead. Hagar, the Egyptian, 
And so there we see um, Hagar conceiving and uh, will eventually give birth to Ishmael. And Ishmael is the seed or the descendant of Abraham. Um, now applying verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Um, this would exclude Ishmael. Just because Ishmael is a descendant, I guess Israel isn't here in view yet, but um, using Abraham as an example, like uh, Paul does here, uh, he is excluded. All right, and Genesis 21, 1 through 3. And so there we see Isaac being born. If you remember the story, uh, Abraham with Hagar and, and Sarah, they were trying to uh, work things out themselves, right? God had made this promise to them that Sarah would have a son, um, but they were getting impatient, and so that's why they had given Hagar to Abraham so that they could work things out themselves apart from God. Um, they were rebuked for that, and then here in chapter 21, we see that Isaac is actually born to Sarah herself um, through Abraham. And we read about that in the, the following verses. So, will somebody read for us verse 6 through uh, 9 of Romans 9? Romans 9, 6 through 9. Who's got that? All right, Jerry. Romans 9, 6 through 9. Yes, please. Good. So, again, that was the promise that God made to Abraham. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. So that's why uh, Ishmael is not a descendant of promise, because Hagar was never meant to be in the picture, right? That was their own worldly, fleshly um, attempt to fulfill God's promise. And then later, in verses uh, 1 and 2 of Genesis 25, we read about Keturah. You got that for us, Logan? All right. They are the children of Abraham that we usually forget about, right? And apparently most of us at the beginning of the class have forgotten about because they don't really matter to us, right? <laughs> because they are not children of promise. They are not even on the same level of Ishmael. They don't get nearly as much time in Scripture as Ishmael. They don't have the kind of influence that he had. Um, so we see up here just kind of a spread of Abraham's immediate descendants and only one of them is the child of promise, right? Only Isaac is regarded as the child of promise. Um, let's see. 
we'll go on here, we see the children of Isaac there now. He had these two children, Esau and Jacob. And we read about them in the latter half of Romans chapter 9. So will somebody read for us Romans 9, 10 through 13. This is moving on from Isaac to Jacob. Who's got 10 through 13? All right, Walker. All right, so here we have a second example of God's election or God's choosing, right? Um, First, he mentioned Isaac and how Isaac was the child or the descendant of promise. And now here he points out Jacob as being the descendant of promise. Uh, It's kind of interesting because theoretically, somebody could take issue with this first example. and They could say, well, Isaac was a child of promise because uh, Abraham wasn't married to Hagar or because Keturah was his second wife. And so that's why Isaac was considered the child of promise. Um, that's why he is considered the, the chosen one through whom God worked rather than Ishmael and Zimran, Jokvan, Medan, Midian, Ishban, and Shua, right? Um, but he goes on and gives a second example of Jacob. And Jacob is unique in that he and his brother not only share the same mother. They shared the same womb, right? They were twins. And remember that Esau was the older one. But as we're told here, um, the younger or the older will serve the younger, um, which was completely contrary to the way that things typically worked. You'd think even just in in our culture that there's a, a certain degree of inheritance that goes with the firstborn that doesn't go with the the latter-born children, right? But especially in that generation, um, it was it was a thing to be the firstborn. If you were the firstborn, then you would receive the inheritance. You would receive the, the promise and the blessing from your father. But Jacob broke that mold by God's will, by God's choosing and God's election. Thoughts at this point? No. Okay. Jeremy's got thoughts. Yeah. 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 Fallible thinking, for sure. But we'll see, um, or we have already begun to see following this, that um, this is an example of that Israel coming out from within Israel, right? That uh, it's not Abraham's descendants all in in total and full who are blessed, but it is Isaac who is a child of promise. It's not Esau, but it's Jacob. So it's, again, this picture of Israel within an Israel, an Israel that has a circumcised heart as opposed to an Israel in general, uh, broadly speaking, who is circumcised in the flesh and in the heart. All right. Um, let's, let's go back and start in verse 6 and 
uh, work our way back down. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, remember last week we tied this in with chapter 8 and talked about how in chapter 8 Paul was um, talking about the security that we can have in Christ and nobody can be lost in Christ, that we are all his and secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul, being the polemical genius that he is, he started to anticipate, well, people may have an issue and say, how can we put our hope and our trust in God if, in fact, he hasn't kept his promises to Israel? Why would he keep his promises to us? Why would we put our, our hope in a God who promised Abraham the land and the seed and the blessing, and yet Israel as a whole has turned their back on God. Uh, by this point, even before this point, um, when was it? It was John 10, maybe? It's in my notes from last week. At some point, um, Jesus had called out Israel, a couple points actually, and said that they had abandoned him as a whole. They had kind of turned their back on Jesus. And so, um, for um, for them to understand that God was working through Israel while Israel had turned their back on God. And again, we got into verse 4 and 5 of chapter 9, and Israel had been given all these different things. They had been given um, the adoption as sons. They had been given the glory of, the God, of God. They had been given the promises, the covenants. Um, even the Messiah came through Israel, and yet... Um, they were separated from God. And that's why Paul had to write and say, I, I'm telling you the truth in Christ and the Holy Spirit that I would, I would be a curse. I would be set apart for your sake because they had a need for salvation. They weren't part of that true circumcised Israel. They had a need to be saved. And so we get here to verse 6, and it says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul just again is faithful, and he's going to remain faithful. Why? For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Again, I think this is pointing back pretty strongly to what we just looked at in Romans chapter 2. Just because you're circumcised in flesh doesn't mean that you are belonging to God. Um, just, again, like we know here, just because somebody wears a badge or the name Christian doesn't mean they're a Christian. Because just because they come to a church doesn't mean they're a believer or part of the universal true body of Christ. Verse 7. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. so it's always a remnant, right? Once again, God never promised to save all of Israel, but he promised to save a remnant of Israel. All right, so verse 7, Nor are all the children, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. That's not what makes them a child of God. Uh, going back to John chapter 8, remember Jesus calling them out and saying, you guys say that you're children of Abraham, but you're not children of Abraham. If you were children of Abraham, then you would realize that I come in the name of my father. And he, in fact, said that you guys are children of your father, the devil. Um, and they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying, right? He's saying, just because you guys are circumcised doesn't mean that God is your father. And that hit home with them. Um, then he carries on back here in Romans 9. Uh, Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as descendants. 
for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. So again, he's adding to his case. He's digging down farther into Israel, um, narrowing even further um, the, the ethnic the group of ethnic Israel to um, that true Israel. So um, there's also Rebekah, when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For through the twins were not, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So going back to his choice here. Um, I think we'll see throughout the next coming chapters that um, this is speaking of um, of salvation. And this is another uh, watershed understanding in this passage. A lot of people will look at Jacob and Esau and they'll say, well, that's talking about the nations of Israel and Edom because it's going back to Malachi and quoting from Malachi. And in that uh, quoted passage, it is talking about the nations of Israel and Edom. But we'll see individuals mentioned all throughout the rest of this passage. And it seems like God is the one who is choosing or electing individuals within um, both Israel and uh, the Gentiles to be his. So later we'll see an example of Pharaoh. Here we're seeing examples of Isaac and Jacob and how they are um, being chosen or elected by God. And so if you take the understanding that it's speaking of nations of Israel and Edom rather than Isaac and, um, not Isaac, Jacob and Esau, then it's likely that you'll tend to lean more towards the, the Arminian side of your soteriology. And if you take the view that it's speaking directly of Esau and Jacob, then you'll tend to lean more towards the, the Calvinistic understanding that each individual person is saved by God, that Jesus calls individuals unto himself, and we respond to that calling. And that will continue to unfold as we work our way down through the rest of the chapter. Um, thoughts on that? That's a big, big statement. Yeah. It's, again, we see back in that verse, it's not based on anything that they did, right? Not anything that they, individual people, it's not talking about nations, but not based on anything that Esau or Jacob did that was good or bad. In fact, it was before they were born that God chose Jacob, and the same would apply to us as well. It's not based on anything that we do. And I think, <clears throat> it's just my understanding, I know that people with of a different opinion would disagree, but I think that to say that um, God doesn't choose us, but we choose him, ultimately it boils down to something that we do that is different from what our neighbor does. If somebody shares Christ with me and uh, my next door neighbor, and I receive Christ and the other person doesn't, then it has to boil down to, well, I was more intelligent somehow, or I was more humble to look inwardly and to realize my sin. Um, something within me would have to set me apart from my neighbor if it's ultimately up to me. I'm not saying that we don't make a choice. I'm saying that God is the one who makes the first and primary choice, and then we respond to that. And again, we'll unfold that more later.
that's a, a big discussion, but <laughs> yes, yeah, we'll, we'll unfold it. We won't understand it until we're in eternity, for sure. Yeah, yeah, we saw that, that God would do it. But at the same time, he's calling them to do it as well, right? Just like with our sanctification, um, how does that happen? Who, who sanctifies us? God, Holy Spirit, you guys don't? You're not going to blame God for your sanctification, are you? You're not going to blame the Holy Spirit for your lack of sanctification, are you? <laughs> there, there's a, a true reality, an, an aspect in which we are responsible for our sanctification, but also God is the one through whom we get the power to be sanctified, right? So it's, it's both and. Um, yes, that in Christ... Um, lies the, the sanctification. Um, and yet, we have that responsibility ourselves. All right. Um, let's see. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And then verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's another verse that causes all kinds of confusion and frustration, right? Yeah, it kind of hits between the eyes and... Um, it doesn't hold back any punches. What is he talking about there? How should we understand that last phrase there? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people will look at it and consider it in that way and think that, that's definitely what it's talking about, a lack of love, or that he loved him less. Um, Joseph, why don't you look up Matthew 10, 38, while well, Jeremy gives his comment. Yeah, yeah. so it's just kicking the bucket down the road a little bit, right? Saying God chose you guys, but that, that group of people, whether it's Israel or the church, that's made up of individuals. All right, what's Matthew 10.38 say, Joseph? <clears throat> that's all it says? Did I give you the wrong reference? Probably. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that's my bad. Um, let's see. Okay. I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, me too, Joseph. Um, I was thinking of the passage where Jesus uh, tells his disciples that unless you hate your mother and your father compared to me. 35? Okay, so yeah, go back to 35 and read that. Yeah, 35 through 37. <laughs>
All right. So some people think that that's kind of how this is being spoken of, that um, God is saying, or that Paul is saying that God hated Esau in the sense that Jesus was calling us to hate our mother and father, to love them to a lesser degree. But um, I don't. there's stronger language in Scripture that talks about God hating sin. And um, let's turn to Psalm 5 together. We'll look at that real quick. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Psalm 5, and I'll go ahead and I'll read verses. Um, yeah, I've got to make sure I'm thinking of the right passage here. Verse 4 through 6. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Those are pretty strong words, right? Um, no evil dwells with God. It says that he hates all who do iniquity. That sounds kind of contrary to our, our little phrase that we use that we're to, that God loves the sinner and hates the sin, right? Um, it says God hates those who do iniquity. And not only does he hate them, but he will destroy them. He will destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and deceit. And... I think 11.5, Psalm 11.5 says something similar. Um, yeah, I'll do, starting in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. So talking about how the Lord's throne is in heaven, how, uh, and his holy temple, it's exalting God, right? Putting him up. And then verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Again, it's not talking about him hating the violence. It's talking about the one who loves the violence, that God's soul hates him. Um, let's look at one more in Psalms uh, 45, verse 7. All right, Psalm 45, 7. I'll do 6 again. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of uprightness in the scepter of your kingdom. Again, exalting God before we take a look at man. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So we see, not just there, but all throughout Scripture, really, that God hates wickedness. And there we saw explicitly that God hates those who practice wickedness. God hates those who love wickedness. Um, and here we see that Jacob God loved, but Esau God hated. And really it's talking about God's choosing of Jacob versus the rejecting of Esau. But it's still super strong language that we see there. And we need to realize that as we're going forward. Yes, Jerry. Yes.
Amen. Amen. And we need to be transferred from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We need to be redeemed. Amen. All right. Uh, let's close out with a couple verses from Leviticus. But again, remembering that this verse, Romans 9 and 6, is really central to this whole section. That it is not as though the word of God has failed. Uh, Leviticus 26, verse 40 through 42 says, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, two very big grievous sins, right? Um, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies or if their uncircumcised hearts become humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land. And then it goes on in the next couple of verses and it talks about how um, they're going to be out of the land for a season. And then it says in verses 45 and 46, God says, But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the ordinances and the laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. God is a God of faithfulness. It is not as if his promises have failed. And then we'll see this later on in Romans 11 as well. Uh, starting at the first little chapter, verses 1 and 2 says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then at the end of 11, in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is immutably faithful. He is faithful and he's not going to change. God is a God who um, makes covenant promises and God is a God who keeps his covenant promises. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the pictures in scripture of Isaac and Jacob and uh, those who are uh, recipients of your grace. God, we thank you that you have poured out your grace upon us and uh, we, are, we are just in awe of who you are and we are speechless about the fact that you have shown us mercy. We are so undeserving. It's not because of anything good or bad that we've done, not because of any knowledge or humility within us, but only because of what you have put within us and, and shown to us. God, we thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the faith that you've given us. Uh, you are a, a God who is faithful and, and loving and kind and just. And we pray that you would help us to see that constantly. Pray this in your name. Amen.